0: Welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night site. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies, even Shakespeare. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it right here. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. And I'm Smitty. Hey, by the way, a reminder: we're now on Facebook too. By the way, and we got uh, some email addresses: galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. dot com is our website and Facebook too. And baby makes three <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and uh, who do we turn it over to now?
1: I'll take it over for a second. Over Ian, on this you. side. Over okay. on this side over here. I got over. lost, and then we only just started. Well, I'm, well. you guys put me out way out here in the hallway without a light bulb, so uh, it's, it's very dark out here. I'm sorry, Smitty. My alarm clock didn't go off. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, Mike. That's fine. Anyway, listen, uh, we're going to get started with our show, and we're going to move over to Mike. And Mike, you've got some real neat memories of AM summer nights on the radio, and you're also going to talk to us about a, a real neat record swap meet. Talk to us about some of that stuff.
2: Well, you know, thanks, Smitty. And you know, I just got back from Pasadena. I I lived in L.A. until about 1987, and about, uh, oh, I would say about 1972, I started collecting records. And not just collecting records, but getting into the uh, record collecting movement. and. Unbeknownst to me, uh, going back to LA on a little mini vacation last week, the Pasadena City College record swap is still in business. It's amazing. I remember, oh, 1970, 71, that was, that was the place to be if you enjoyed collecting records or talking to other radio, radio and record collectors. And at Pasadena City College, it's the first Sunday of every month and they take the entire parking level at Pasadena City College and I bumped into a guy a fellow by the name of Gary Schneider and Gary is probably the best source on planet earth for air checks and air checks are those little uh, gems that for years I thought I would never find again but the reason I'm talking about that is because I've gone back and being a nostalgia buff I've gone back to making my own retro radio shows using air checks that can be purchased from people such as Gary Schneider. Uh, by the way, his website is Open Mind Collectibles. that's O-P-E-N-M-Y-N-D, collectibles.com. Gary's one of the neatest guys I've met, and he's got the entire, the exhaustive list of air checks that you could ever possibly want to build your own radio show. And since it's summertime, I decided to put together a summer retro radio show putting together air checks, some of the old LP records. And the Pasadena Record Swap is probably one of the best places you can go anyway if you want to add to your record collection. But these air checks are just great. Somebody had the foresight to realize that this was part of American pop history to keep these uh, radio shows alive. And Smitty, you know a lot about air checks, and there are scoped air checks and not scoped air checks. What's the difference?
1: Well, Mike... An unscoped air check is a recording of a radio program, usually with a DJ, a musical program that went out exactly as it was heard. Nothing's been cut out of it. A scoped air check means that the song has been gutted. They've just given you an intro on the song. They've given you the outro. They've cut the middle out of the song. And the reason for that is because sometimes you want to have an air check of the person who's on the air, you're not too interested in hearing the songs because you're familiar with the songs. They cut that out in order to save time and to save space on your tape or CD or whatnot. So a scoped air check has had the middle of the, of the songs cut out. An unscoped air check is exactly as it went out over the air.
2: Great. Well, you know, Gary Snyder's got them all, and I picked up a few... And it's summer, and summer brings back so many good memories of growing up in Los Angeles. I decided to put together my own summertime, summer night radio show using air checks and LPs. And in the 70s, of course, everybody has their favorite DJ. My favorite DJ was BMR B. Mitchell Reed. And it just so happened, uh, Gary's probably got more of the B. Mitchell Reed history than anyone else on earth.
3: This is B. Mitchell Reed, this is Sunday, the 20th of uh, September. <laughs> In case you're just getting up and wanted to be reminded of the fact, this is B. Mitri. This is KMET 94.7 FM Metro Media Stereo in Los Angeles, and I'll be back in a bit. Hi there. This is B. Mitri. This is Sunday, the 20th of uh, September. <laughs> I was listening to a lot of New York radio, and it, blech, man, they are the most provincial town in radio I've ever heard of in my entire life. And that's that's, 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 that's that, that, that. <laughs> okay. That's hard to really maybe um, communicate to uh, an audience in Los Angeles. Well, why, why would you care that New York radio is provincial?
2: When I talk about the good days of AM and FM radio on those summer nights, there was nothing like a real human being who was actually in your town, not back east somewhere, programming songs that statistics dictate that you would want to hear. These guys pretty much, uh, they worked right from the seat of their pants. And one of the best things, in addition to the music and, of course, the personalities, B. Mitchell Reed, of course, there was Bill Balance, a... Uh, One of the best things about summer nights and sitting there maybe on the front porch or up on the roof or out in the front yard, smoggy, 109 degrees. Most of the homes in my area of L.A., Highland Park, were built in the early 1900s, so they all had big front porches. And the front porches were built big because people actually got to know each other. The neighbors got together, and people would come over, have front yard parties, and we would listen to the radio till all hours of the night because that's about all there was to do. After the 10 o'clock news on KTLA, there wasn't much on TV. And again, this was in the early 60s. There were only 12 channels. But the best part about your favorite personality and, of course, the music were those great commercials. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever see those again, but you can go back, build your own memory listening list, and here's one of my favorite. This is B. Mitch on KMT media Stereo Los Angeles.
3: Everybody's talking about waterbeds nowadays, right? And with good reason, because the waterbed is the uh, greatest thing that happened to sleep since the invention of the inner spring. <laughs> okay. If you've been thinking about getting a waterbed, now you can have one delivered to your very door. The world's largest manufacturer of waterbeds, Pacific Waterbeds, presents Fat Bernie's King Size Waterbed. Bed. I love the name. Uh, Six-foot by seven-foot waterbeds a $100 value for only $39.95. $39.95 for your own king-size Fat Bernie waterbed if you act now. Just call 461-3631 and have a Fat Bernie's waterbed delivered COD right to your door with a 10-day money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied. Your loved one will love you for it. Well, whomever she or he may be. Or maybe have a two or three. That's good. And you'll even love yourself. Maybe you'll just want to ensconce yourself on your waterbed without anybody around. That's real narcissism, okay? Fat Bernie's waterbed from Pacific Waterbed
2: can't do any better than that i wonder where fat bernie's is today and i guess the days of the 39 dollars waterbeds are over and i guess the days of the waterbeds are over bmr passed away he left us uh, probably 20 years ago but uh, i happened to have the opportunity to intern for b mitchell reed at kfwb back in the uh, mid-60s and you know what uh, There's nothing like a little bit of nostalgia, especially on a hot summer night when there's not much else to do. And we did this piece about air checks because we did get a lot of emails on where can people find copies, recordings of their favorite disc jockeys. And more importantly, their favorite commercials Well, you can find them. You just go to Google and type in air checks. They're going to cost you probably about $10, $12 a piece, but you'll get them on MP3, on a CD-ROM and you'll be able to put your own show together for hot summer night
0: listenings. And
2: air checks, uh, I would recommend OpenMindCollectibles.com.
0: Ian, did you have a favorite DJ growing up? Yeah, but I grew up in New York, you know, the place that's so provincial. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure we could probably uh, yeah. translate those air checks uh, for the, us folks out here. Uh, I hate to say this, but BMR worked in New York, too.
2: Yes, he did. So, he was also a, he, I believe he's a bombardier on a B-24 in World War II. Wow. He was a. And it, he was, it, a it was, shot, it was shot
0: down over Brooklyn.
2: It shot down over Brooklyn. Oh, was eesh. that
1: the famous Battle of Brooklyn? That's yeah, uh, the
0: Mozzarella <laughs> War. I think the British were
1: involved. somewhere. is that where your eye? Is that where your eye kind of looked like a like a piece of melted mozzarella cheese? Mozzarella,
0: <laughs> mozzarella. My favorite DJ was Dan Ingram, WABC. Wow, how about that? Oh, you know, that's
1: great.
2: We had Mike Zaccaro here talking about jukeboxes yes. a few episodes back, and I just wanted to to plug Mike on something that he's doing. Just I was so impressed. We're taping here on a Sunday, but last night, Saturday night, Mike debuted his show uh, on KCBQ. It's one of the oldest AM uh, stations in San Diego, and it's gone like most of the other AM stations to talk format. But guess what? Mike convinced the owners of KCBQ that San Diego needed a retro doo-wop oldies R&B music show. So he's on the air every Saturday night from 9 to 11 with what is it Smitty It's the Saturday Night Sock Hop Saturday Night yes, Sock Hop If right. you want to tune in Mike Zaccaro is the undisputed expert It's almost like you're almost like you're going in a time machine back to the late 50s early 60s Good work Mike and tune in Uh, Mike can use your support, and his uh, premiere show was last night, but we're really excited about what he's done. We all listened in last night, and he'll be
1: back on the show soon. He will. Mike Zuccaro is, of course, a regular contributor to Galaxy, and we've done a couple shows with him. You folks out there have already heard the jukebox show with him and the hi-fi show that uh, we did not too long ago. And Mike will be with us again very, very soon.
2: Anyway, keep those emails coming. We, uh, we did get quite a few emails on where to find disc jockey songs and commercials. And uh, as we say, go to Google, type in airchecks, and they're there for the taking. Uh, back to you, Smitty. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Mike. That was a great piece. I wanted to talk a little bit about the radios that we used during that time period, during those years. And so I want to just kind of present a brief history of portable radios because uh, chances are when you were up on um, up on the rooftop or down at the park or by the beach, you had a little portable radio. So let's talk a little bit about them. Portable radios have been in existence since the late 1930s. At that time, they were large, cumbersome units that required many batteries to supply power. As vacuum tubes developed and new varieties were brought out for farms in rural areas where there was no AC power, these tubes and these technologies were applied to portable radios into making them smaller, lighter and more reliable. By the beginning of the 1940s, portable radios were catching on not only as a fun way to take your favorite radio shows with you, but to keep informed as World War II developed and seemingly one crisis after another brought the world closer to conflict. By the 1940s, further developments such as more powerful tubes operating on less voltage and improved battery packs helped to promote the portable radio as a fun and useful item that could be taken Anywhere used year-round, whether in the backyard, on a winter ski trip, on the beach, in summertime. And development of new tube types, smaller and more efficient than before, allowed manufacturers to sell radios that had excellent reception and much improved battery life. Now, therein was one of the big problems of early portables, the batteries. Tubes require several different voltages to operate properly. The earliest tubes required rather high voltages that were somewhat difficult to achieve with batteries trying to get those correct voltages uh, it was a was a big challenge as we have said further developments in tube technology and improved batteries did away with those problems that were causing the size of the radio versus the convenience of carrying it around early portable radios were self-contained little boxes that sometimes had a lid to fold over the dial face the back would open up to allow installation of batteries and the cabinet was often finished in a durable material that would stand up to the rigors of being carried around in January of 1942, Zenith came out with the first of its series of transoceanic radios, an advanced portable that not only received standard AM broadcasts but also contained several shortwave bands. The transoceanic heralded a new era in multiband portable radios, and the lineage of those transoceanics would extend well into the solid state era. However, this initial introduction of the transoceanic was short lived, as Zenith as well as other commercial manufacturers of radio sets stopped production in early 1942 to concentrate strictly on wartime defense production. By the end of World War II, manufacturers began to make radio sets once again. I think that the post-World War II period represented the greatest growth in portable sets as all manufacturers scrambled to bring their new radios to market. And what a market it was. Sales of radios, portables included, were huge, and the public benefited from the recent improvements in these sets. Typically, the portables of the late 1940s and well into the 50s utilized 1-volt tubes. The filament supply, which was one of the problems for supplying the voltages from batteries, was combated using these efficient tubes. Lower plate voltages, which are the high voltages used on most radio tubes, were reduced with no decrease in efficiency of the radio set. As the 1940s gave way to the 50s, miniature tubes made their entry into market and allowed some portables to be made in a smaller and more compact size. Most portable radios of this era were known as three-way portables, meaning they could be operated from standard AC current in homes, from DC current in localities where that voltage source was utilized, and from batteries. This allowed these sets to be played almost anywhere in the world and made them great traveling companions. Portable tube radios were the norm for many years. Their technology improved and tubes and batteries were made tougher and longer lasting. In 1948, the invention of the transistor marked the beginning of a new era in electronics. Although it would be a number of years until this technology filtered down to the consumer market, by the late 1950s, transistorized radios using no tubes whatsoever, and weighing much less than their older tube counterparts, began entering the market with a warm reception from a public that had grown used to having portable radio sets with them on the go. Now these new, efficient, and very light sets continued to be traveling companions of millions and helped to sustain radio as it changed in the advent of the television age from a dominant entertainment medium to one of on-the-go music and information. Indeed, radio continued to grow as the ability of being able to take the radio with you became a reality for millions. As technology marched on, miniaturization of solid-state sets continued. The entry of Japanese electronics manufacturers into the market helped with further developments in the solid-state era, culminating in the one radio that all of us had at one time or another, the beloved shirt pocket transistor set, which operated on one 9-volt battery. I guess that most of us have had one or more of these little radios in our lifetimes. They bring back a lot of memories of taking one to school and maybe using an earphone with it, of receiving one for a birthday or Christmas, of listening to your favorite DJ late at night, as Mike mentioned earlier, or perhaps taking one to a summer baseball game and listening to the play-by-play as you watch the game from the grandstand. Perhaps this is where most of our memories are. The radio became an intimate part of our being, a personal item that we would not dream of leaving the house without. Technology has marched on, giving us further miniaturization, integrated circuits, radios that we can hold in the palm of our hand that can receive AM and FM and maybe play tapes or music from a smart card or a flash drive. But I don't think these newer radios can capture the magic of our first transistor portable, the opening of a whole world of fun you could take with you, the magic of knowing that you had the sound of the world in your very hands. Ian, Mike, back to you guys.
0: Oh, that, that was beautiful. I enjoyed that.
2: That was beautiful, and you know that that brought back so many memories. I was talking previously about summer nights and. The portable radios they were they were works of art. I just posted a retro uh, uh 1955 RCA Victor up on our website Galaxy mm-hmm. Moonbeam Nightsite. Just posted it Great. and if you look at it if you go online and look at it it's beautiful. It just it's got some gold trim and and green rather these were made of
1: plastic, right? Yeah, they were made of plastic, Mike. Yes, okay. by that time they weren't making them out of bakelite. They were made of plastic.
2: So that in the fifties, and, and these were these were truly design items. You know, I've gone out looking for these in thrift stores, antique shops, and I find the common the common thread in finding these is you open the battery case and it. It looks like the salt and sea in there. Yeah. <laughs> because most of the times these things were these things were put away with the dry
1: cells and yeah. the dry cells would uh, would they explode or just leak? The batteries would just leak. Is there yeah. any way to clean those up? You know, Mike, there is and I believe I'm gonna do some research on that and I'll come back on a subsequent show with this. But I believe if you get a Q tip and you dip it in I believe household ammonia that will dissolve that corrosion, and then of course you'd probably follow it up with a a neutral cleaner like some water or something. You know, a little bit of of water probably on the tip of a Q tip to dissolve that corrosion.
0: And then once you've made all that cleaning, would uh, the thing still work?
1: Yes, it should. Yeah, because the the issue is to remove that corrosion so that that the contacts for the battery are will still make contact. Mm. That's what it's all about. I see. Getting back to to the design of these of these radio, they have that classic '50s design and i think that's one of the appeals for collectors
2: well collectability as far as values you know we've talked on several episodes about the value of the actual traditional the cathedrals and the floor models are, is there a high value on these what what is the most valuable
1: i believe the most valuable transistor radio is one of the early regency portables the regencies the regencies, are, regencies okay. are very collectible ah and, Mike, that's a great picture. I'm glad you posted that on our website for our friends to see.
2: Yeah, we've got that up there as a uh, – And they called them portables, but they, they really weren't. They were almost as big as the uh, the soda – the Coke box that you brought the sodas Just into the Just about,
1: beach. but I'll tell you what. When they became transistorized, they did become lighter, but the tube ones, they were pretty hefty. You, you had to – you had to have strong arms to carry those around. <laughs> what was the uh, what was actually the life on the battery,
2: Smitty? On you buy a dry cell. First of all, how much were they? It wasn't like getting a seventy nine cent nine volt for your transistor. I, were they pricey?
1: They were the, back then. They were a couple dollars. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and again, the life expectancy depended on how much you used the radio. Can you get it, those now? Yes, there was a company that was remanufacturing those for a while. I believe they still are. And if not, now it's possible by using a bunch of nine volt batteries or whatever to make your own battery pack. What you want to do is you want to equal the voltages that the radio needs, and you can use you know you can use a, a nine volt battery to uh, do that.
2: I just uh, you know in the world of collectibility, I just I think they're among the most beautiful pieces yes. of fifties of fifties uh, collectibles. That I've ever seen it. And they're out there. I've I've seen them in thrift stores for 4 or $5. Oh, and yeah, definitely. Just for shelf decoration. I think they're just great to they're have around. Great. They're great radios. be so. nice
1: gifts, too. Yes, they would, especially for someone who's into that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So anyway, anyway uh, let's move on now. And uh, we're going to talk about making mine Macbeth. Ian Rose is big on the Bard starting back in high school. Hey, Ian, didn't Macbeth wear a dress? So
0: did Julius Caesar. Now, I know what you're thinking when we talk about the bard. That's William Shakespeare. You know Shakespeare? Boring! Well, maybe not. Did you know that West Side Story was based to some degree on Romeo and Juliet? And the Tempest was the template for Forbidden Planet. Here in San Diego, Shakespeare's plays pop up from time to time, besides the regular run of the Old Globe Theater. And now and then his works appear at the movies, too. Back in the 1960s, Somerville High School in Central New Jersey taught you four, count them, four of his plays, one each year in your freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years. Now, everybody got Hamlet, and the three others were up for grabs. Everybody got Hamlet? Now, some didn't get it. Some still don't understand the line, when his quietus make with a bare bodkin. I think that means committing suicide with a knife. Anyway, to recap, this segment is called Make Mine Macbeth, in my high school, besides Hamlet, we had The Merchant of Venice, Julius Caesar, and Macbeth. The Merchant of Venice was a comedy, but it didn't have a lot of laughs. It was where women dress up in men's clothing, and people thought they were men. Gender-bending in merry old England. Now, to add to the confusion, women were not allowed on the Elizabethan stage, so young boys played women. So here you had a man playing a woman playing a man. We never saw such confusion like this until Julie Andrews played in Victor Victoria. Now, Julius Caesar wore a dress, and no one confused him with being a woman. These two plays, The Merchant of Venice and Julius Caesar, were offered during my freshman and sophomore years in high school. Now, to refresh your memory on Julius Caesar, back in 44 B.C., senators in Rome were disappointed with Julius. They thought he was getting too big for his britches, which he didn't wear anyway, so they stabbed him in the forum, and they also stabbed him in the gut. And when Brutus asked how many eggs he had for breakfast, he said, at two, Brute. Bad joke. Mark Antony borrowed everybody's ears. He was part of a counter-effort, which was against Caesar's assassins. The play moves to the battlefield. On the battlefield, those Roman togas can really get drafty. Anyway, Brutus, rather than surrendering, runs into his sword. Or maybe it was his bare bodkin. Suicide was acceptable back then, even without Jack Kevorkian around. And that was that. I guess that Mark Antony returned everybody's ears. We've covered Hamlet a bit already. This reminds me of the story of a traveling actor who did Hamlet on a traveling stage. He was bad. How bad was he? He was so bad, people threw things at him, food items such as tomatoes and eggs. So this Hamlet turned into an omelet. Seriously, folks, nine people would die in that play before the final curtain, and that includes Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Hamlet himself. Hamlet was the prince of Denmark. The story starts when Hamlet saw a ghost, his dead father, who had been king, his brother, Hamlet's uncle, had done him in. Now, to recap those murders, the uncle had married Hamlet's father, or mother, I'm getting all confused, his girlfriend accidentally drowns, her dad is accidentally killed by Hamlet, her brother is killed by Hamlet, his uncle, the new king, is killed by Hamlet, and Hamlet's mom poisons herself. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are still dead. And I thought the Danes were a friendly bunch. This is said to be the greatest play written by the greatest playwright. That is, if you don't mind stepping over the bodies and the blood, (sighs) make mine Macbeth. Now, if Hamlet was, as Laurence Olivier said, the man who couldn't make up his mind, Macbeth made up his mind too quickly. He was at least a man of action. And if he wore a dress, so what? (laughs) Maybe he had the legs for it. If it were good enough for Julius Caesar, it was good enough for him. Macbeth, the play itself had a lot of action in it, at least by Elizabethan standards. The play starts out in the aftermath of a battle that Macbeth had won. The play ends at Macbeth's castle and a big fight. And in between there are stabbings, including the king and Macbeth's friend, and we get at least one ghost and three witches. It's these witches that get Macbeth into trouble. When he first meets them, they predict that he will become king. And he does, by helping fate along by killing the current king himself. This with a little help from his wife, a family that slaves together, Stays together. Hey, this the killings just got started. Later on, Macbeth's friend, Banquo, gets stabbed. All of Macduff's castle gets wiped out. Macduff was away at the time. Anti-Macbeth forces leave Scotland for England for assistance. They'll get by with a little help from their English friends. Yes, the British to the rescue. Now, before we get to Macbeth's castle, Macbeth checks in once again with the three witches. The witches tell him that you, Macbeth, will never be taken by a man who's from a woman born. Looks like he's got it made. Macbeth goes back to his castle. Lady Macbeth suffers some heavy-duty guilt and kills herself. Macbeth gives his famous tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. And centuries later, NBC would take one tomorrow and turn it into a show. Anyway, Macbeth's castle is attacked by anti-Macbeth forces, including the Brits. Then comes the final showdown. Macduff, whose whole family was wiped out on order of Macbeth, takes on Macbeth sword for sword. But Macbeth says he cannot be taken by a man who was woman born. And Macduff tells him that he was ripped from his mother's womb by an animal. I don't want to look and I don't want to know. That was the first C-section. All's lost. Macbeth gives it one last try. They put metal to the metal. They fight. Macbeth loses. So he gets a blade to the gut. They cut off his head and stick it on the end of a pike. Talk about pike's peak. A head on a stick. I like that. That's Shakespearean. So I made mine Macbeth, and he lost his head over everything. He became a tyrant, today called a dictator, and he got his. But there is something else here in this play. It is a complete turnaround for the title character, not to mention a lop-off. Macbeth starts off as the fair-haired boy of Scotland, dress and all, okay, a kilt. He was now the king's favorite by winning an important battle. The king awards him with a title and some land. And from a king's favorite, Macbeth becomes the king who degenerates into a tyrant. Shakespeare may be saying that it could happen to him, it could happen to all of us. It could happen to you! Evil is in us all, just waiting to emerge. So if you run into three witches with all the answers, or if you have a controlling wife who wants you to commit murder, or if you wear a dress, you may have Tyrant Macbeth Syndrome. Seek a head shrinker immediately and leave your sword at the desk.
1: I'm Ian Rose. That's uh, perhaps one of the best explanations of Shakespeare that I've ever heard, Mike. Well, you, you definitely
2: speared the <clears> head <throat> on the stick controversy that has been haunting Shakespeare fans for so many centuries.
1: All I have to say about that is I have to quote my favorite radio comedian, the late great Fred Allen, who said Hamlet sounds like a spam derivative. <laughs> Oh, uh, leave it up to uh, Fred, Allen Fred Allen to give the final word. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Ian. And on that note, we're going to have our retro commercial. We'll be right back with more of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. So stay tuned.
2: Here you go,
4: Ian. You hear that sound? That's the beating of a human heart. Yes, a human heart, the pulsating mechanism that pumps steadily throughout the lifetime of each one of us. Now you'll hear a different kind of sound, the sound of time in its flight. The electrical impulse that produced that steady beep, beep, beep had its origin in the famed observatory of the Elgin Watch Company, the observatory that times your Elgin Watch to the stars, time accurate to hundreds of a second. This time is the precise standard used by Elgin craftsmen while they're making, testing, and adjusting Elgin watches. Elgin Observatory Time is also the official time of United Airlines. And now, to keep this star timed accuracy, Elgin's new DuraPower mainspring gives a permanency of timekeeping performance and freedom from trouble never before possible in any watch. For this miracle mainspring completely overcomes rust, the greatest cause of mainspring breakage. The Algen Dura-Power mainspring eliminates 99% of watch troubles due to steel mainspring failures. Surely the person for whom you plan the gift of a watch this Christmas will be so much happier with an Algen.
1: GalaxyMoonBeamNightSight.com, the podcast. And once again, we're going to turn to Ian Rose. Ian, when is a door Not a door. When it's a jar? No, when it's a star.
0: And the man who made a door a star, Hyman Brown, died June 4th at age 99. The producer-director was a big part of the golden days of radio. Then he tried to bring those days back in one of the most ambitious comeback attempts in broadcasting history. John Dunning's Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio says Brown, way back when, told of a studio basement door that gave off an ungodly creak when opened, and then a light bulb went on figuratively. One day he would make that door a star. That is, of course, Hyman Brown, and he did it with the horror anthology Inner Sanctum Mysteries, where a creaking door opened and closed. The show ran from 1941 to 52. In 1962, This style of radio, that is, dramas, comedies, and so forth, ended temporarily. Brown brought it back a dozen years later with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. And yes, the creaking door was back, too. This radio show, a dramatic mystery anthology, ran for one hour, seven nights a week. Initially, some of the writing could have been better, but the show garnered awards and positive write-ups. A good mix of classic and original stories aired... It had a combination of TV stars and old-time radio people. Even Hyman Brown would appear. I heard him myself once. The show was hosted by E.G. Marshall and later Tammy Grimes. And let's not forget the creaking door, both opening and closing every show. After eight years and 1,500 shows, from 1974 to 82, old-time radio ended a second time. Hyman Brown survived that by nearly 30 years. I'm Ian Rose.
1: Thank you very much, Ian. Remembering Hyman Brown, and I remember listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater when I was a kid. It was really neat to experience that.
2: Good story. Okay, another one, another oldie. I'm glad we could capture that story. Thank you, Ian. Well, we're running out of time. In fact, we've gone into over, overdraft as far <laughs> as the clock goes. We're uh, so glad you stay tuned and listen to us and heard these great stories and this is the galaxy moonbeam night site we're going to wrap up this episode but we invite you to come back on future podcasts or if you're new to our podcast, uh we've got over 20 others from our premiere all the way up to uh recent and we've got a whole whole big bundle of stories and episodes coming up that's going to uh last us well into the uh 2018
1: do you so, think? I think so, at least. Well, great. At okay. least. Well, that's yes. not
2: too far away. It's only uh, a
1: few hours away.
2: 20.09 <laughs> right now, <laughs> yeah, if <it's> military time. <laughs> anyway, we do thank you for listening to us. Our Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com email, and we love those emails. Keep them coming. That gives us the stuff to make this stuff, to deliver this stuff to you. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And to get the stuff over to us, email us at galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. And I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And all together now, all together now, Galaxy Moonbeam nice, Night Sight. Right. we'd like to thank, yeah, you, thank you again. You. Join Goodbye. us again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Adios. A feeder's ain't.